great to, to gather with you and to worship together and to, to hang out tonight. We are kind of launching into a new series, and um, I know we may need to turn that fan off, just reminding you, Gavin. Um, so how many of you, when you were a kid, liked to use a calculator when you were doing math, right? And how many of you had a mom, maybe like uh, mine, that would say, listen, you need to actually learn the multiplication tables because you're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket when you grow up, right? How many of you have a smartphone? Okay, you have a calculator in your pocket and you walk around with it all the time, right? You think about all the advancements we've made in society and it's an amazing thing. The technology alone, everything that's transpired, I think even over the last 50 years, that they say that there's more technology in your smartphone now than technology that was used to put a man on the moon. That's crazy when you begin to think about it. And yet, maybe like, like me, you look at the news and you look at the world and you, and you go, for all the advancement we've made, how come we're still so messed up? Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like there's more pressure on you to try to live out this faith and it just seems like challenge after challenge and setback after setback, you, everything from racism to just everything in our world, you, it's just a mess. And then, and then you look at the, the political scene, and we'll call it that, it's a scene, and you know, we're, we're not political here. We don't, we don't talk about it. Here's this, as much politics as we'll ever get. Uh, you should vote. There you go. But a year ago, as we were kind of looking at future series, um, I just really felt like this series right here needed to be right here in this time. And uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks kind of leading up, uh, probably the next six, seven weeks, looking at the book of Daniel and the life of Daniel. And what's fascinating about the life of Daniel is I'll give you a little bit of the kind of the history a little bit tonight, and then we'll draw out some applications from Daniel chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Daniel chapter 1. That's where we'll be tonight. And if you have, um, you can follow along on sermon notes uh, on the YouVersion app. It's got all the notes in there, passages we'll look at. Daniel uh, was a young man, a teenager, when something transpired for him that all of us would look at and go, okay, that stinks, like that should never happen, uh, he became a refugee, okay, deported and a prisoner of war. That's what happens. He's probably about age 14. And another key player in chapter one is Nebuchadnezzar, who's leading the Babylonian army, who's tackling and one of his great uh, wars and achievements in life is he, he kind of fights back Egypt. And so now they've gone from modern day Iraq all the way down to Egypt, and they kind of own all the land in between. And he kind of sieges on to Jerusalem, to Judea, this, the southern part of uh, the tribes of Israel. And he, he puts a siege around Jerusalem, captures it, and he takes 10,000 and deports them. And he doesn't just take 10,000 people randomly. He takes the best of the best. In fact, what he tells his officers, look, you take the most handsome, you take the most intelligent, the, the, like those that are like sharp, those who are quick learners, the best of the best, we want them. And he left all the poor. In fact, if you read about Nebuchadnezzar, he's an awful man. 
He's an awful man. His military prowess and everything that he was about uh, in history books talk about the way he waged war. He was also a building architect. Babylon, in a lot of ways, was one of the, the superpowers of the world of the day. And the advancement that they had and how they would build and how they would conquer was amazing. Horrible, but amazing. Something to partake of. And you begin to understand, here's what David is, or here's what Daniel is thrust into. Um, as Daniel finds at age 14, he's being deported to a foreign land. And all the challenges are going to be, can you imagine what would be going through your mind if that happened to you at 14? And I think what we're going to see over this series is some interesting things in the life of Daniel. In fact, Daniel gets deported here from, uh, from Judea. He never goes back. He spends uh, the next kind of up to about age 85 is where we kind of lose track of where he's at, but he spends his whole time there in Babylon. He's serving three different empires that kind of come in, and we'll kind of walk through those as we go through the series. And as things begin to unfold, there's this amazing thing that we see in the, in the book of Daniel, some amazing um, miracles that happen, some amazing stories that maybe you've heard even as a kid and you're gonna look at some of those. We're gonna look at Daniel's life and say, okay, how did he thrive in a land that had so much pressure counter against his faith, against his upbringing, against what he knew to be right? And yet what you see in the life of Daniel is that this refugee prisoner becomes a prime minister of a foreign land. How do you explain that other than God? That should not happen. It would not happen in our day. But it happened in his. And there was something about the way Daniel lived out his faith that generated some great influence that God used. And that's what I want us to see over these next uh, few weeks together. We're gonna look at this. So Daniel, just if you're a Bible nerd like me, it's written in two different languages. I don't know if you knew that or not, but chapter one and then chapter eight through the end is all in Hebrew. Chapter two through uh, up to chapter eight is all in Aramaic. So for whatever that means, there you go. There's a little Bible knowledge for you that you probably won't remember and it doesn't matter. So here is what Daniel starts with as we look at Daniel chapter one, verse one. It says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These were carried off to the temple of God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered uh, Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He would teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and then the king assigned them daily amount of food and wine from his very table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen from that of Judah is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. This is the names you probably have heard them. Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So that's the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the ones you kind of hear. We'll get to their story in chapter 2. What's fascinating about this is their names, and I wrote some of this in the notes, They take these Hebrew names that meant beautiful things about who God was and they change them like 
to Meshach just became like moon god. That became his name. It just changed it to say, look, you are no longer you. You're now gonna be us. And for three years, they enter into Babylon University, and they are forced to study astrology and mysticism and all these things that would be so counter to what they knew and what they believed. And they pushed back in moments, but they didn't push back in others. And what happens in this three-year experience is God raises up their influence to begin to have influence even around them. And this challenge that they begin to speak into and the culture they begin to become a part of and begin to speak against and into, God begins to use their lives to leverage those for his sake. That there's this great challenge that goes. Now, but you have to understand, if it was me, where's God in this? Isn't that what you'd be asking? Isn't that what you've asked in the past? Where's God? When tragedy unfolds, God, where are you? This isn't how the story should go. You remember one of the famous verses in the Bible, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you for your good. You know the verse right before that? I bet you don't. It's where Jeremiah is prophesying the end of this Babylonian captivity, that after 70 years, God's gonna bring his people home. That's what he's speaking about in Jeremiah 29, 11. In 29.10, he's talking about this moment right here. Hey, this is gonna happen. And when we ask those questions, God, where are you? I'm sure that's what they were asking, 14 years old. We, we think Daniel old, and we think Daniel in this, he's 14. He goes to school for three years, that would make him what? 17. Good job with your math without the calculator, good job. He's 17 years old when a lot of this stuff begins to transpire. He's 14 when we look into the, the story we're gonna look into tonight. So, so for some of you, your youth here, God can use you right where you're at. You don't have to grow up to be used by God. God can use you right here, right now. That's what Daniel stepped into. That's where he began to live this life of conviction, not of compromise. It's this great challenge and invitation for us in a world that wants us to compromise. It would have been really easy to compromise in Daniel's day. Taken away from your family, taken away from everything you've known, and forced into a situation that you never wished on anybody, let alone yourself. And you could have responded differently. And maybe we ask the question, where is God? I'm sure that's what they were asking that day which is what makes verse two really important. Verse two, remember? And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. One of the themes throughout the book of Daniel is that God's in control of foreign leaders and of his people no matter what. That his sovereignty reigns over it all. And this is what was prophesied many years before. Israel, you keep ignoring God, you keep ignoring God, you keep pushing him away. I'm sending Babylon. It's kind of like a spiritual spanking is what's happening. That you would turn your heart back to me. 
and you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. That's Jeremiah 29.10. And at the end of that, hey, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you hope, to give you a future, and I will bring you back. So this is kind of like a spiritual spanking going on. It's not fun in the moment. And what we begin to see in the life of Daniel is he steps forward into these moments as he goes throughout Babylon University for three years and all the things that he would have had to learn and all the things he would have had to step into, all the ways that he would have had to change who he was. Can you imagine all the pressure that was on him and all the pressure that were on his friends? What we see is a group of 10,000 people being taken away and what we focus on is four who God said, I'll use them. And I'll use them to be an influence even beyond what they could get their mind around. Daniel was a person of godly conviction and graceful interactions. And friends, in our world, we need people like Daniel more and more who have godly convictions they live by, but they do it in graceful interactions with the world around them. What's fascinating is in Babylon University, there's probably lunch hour. You understand lunch hour because you eat lunch. And so lunch hour comes around, right? And all the food's coming from the king's table. The wine's coming from the king's table. And this is what's given to them to eat because they're the best of the best. And we've got to train them well because they're going to go into the king's service. And here's what Daniel and his buddies know is that this food probably offered to idols, This food may not be the kosher kind that they've known and they know God's law says, hey, look, I want you to eat this way and that's the whole Jewish law. We won't have time to go into that. But the reality is that the Jewish people understood. Here's some ways that God has laid this out that it would be for our good. And so we're gonna follow God in this. And here they are in a foreign land at 14 at lunchroom. And among 10,000 people, they push back from the lunch table and they stand up and they take a stand but they don't do it in arrogance. Like, yeah, hey, we're taking a stand. Look at us, we're tough, we're cool. What do they do? Well, verse eight in chapter one is probably the key verse of the entire chapter, maybe one of the keys in the entire book. So let's just look at that one. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself that way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official said to Daniel, I'm afraid. Do you know who Nebuchadnezzar is? Do you know what he does to people who disobey him? Daniel goes, I've read the stories. I've read the history books. Would you just simply test us? Would you just give us vegetables and water? If you've ever heard of the Daniel diet, this is where it comes from. I don't do it because it's vegetables. I like water, Um, but... The reality is, here's what Daniel says. He makes a proposition. Hey, listen, we don't want to defile ourselves. We don't want to disobey God in order to obey man. So here's what we'd like to do. And he makes a proposition. When you take a stand for God, God loves to come alongside you and stand with you. And that's exactly what God does in this scenario. He was already at work behind the scenes causing this official to show favor to Daniel. He certainly didn't have to, but he did. And he was moved, and it made sense to him. Daniel was a person of great tact. How many of you wish more Christians had tact? I sure do, because I see a lot of Christians who do a lot of harm 
because they don't have tact. They don't have graceful interaction. Listen, you can be a person of godly convictions. You just don't have to be a jerk about it. Can I get an amen? Can we promise to be people who are living with godly conviction without being a jerk about it? That's less of an amen. Can I get an amen? All right, let's commit to that because that's important for our world that wants to pressure people so much. And it's okay to be pressed, but it's not okay to react so negatively. You can take a stand, that's what Daniel does. And in that moment, God comes in, he's working behind the scenes, causes this official to say, okay, we'll do a 10-day test. Can you really change anything in 10 days just by eating vegetables? Maybe vegetables are that good, I don't know. But God was working in this. And at the end of 10 days, he goes, you guys are better than the other 9,000 plus people we've got here. So we'll keep doing it. And so for three years, that's their diet. That's their exercise. That's what's happening to them. That's what's unfolding in their life. And Daniel became a person of godly conviction and graceful interaction. I love what Eugene Peterson talks about when he talks about discipleship, being a a person who's following after Jesus, following after God. He calls it like this. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's not perfection. It's about a long obedience in the same direction, in God's direction that I'm gonna choose to obey. And that's what Daniel and his friends are stepping up to in that moment. The moment they pushed away from the lunchroom table was the moment they said, God, I don't wanna disobey you in order to obey man. I'm gonna put you first and I'm gonna let my obedience to you direct and I'm gonna take a stand. What we wanted in that moment is for God to look at Daniel and his friends and say, that's awesome that you guys did that. Let's go back to Jerusalem. And he brings this giant hawk and picks him up and drive. Is that's what we'd want? Because that's what we pray for. God, I'm in this horrible situation, this, all this pressure. Would you help me to be obedient to you? And what we want in that moment when we step forward in obedience is for God to rescue it and change everything. Did he do that for Daniel? No, he was in year one of Babylon U. This was week one. He still had two and a half more years to go but he was with them. See, God never promises to deliver us from, but he always promises to be with us and deliver us through. And that's what God is beginning to show in Daniel. At 14, you can't forget that. And he's stepping forward in faith, beginning to promise and to live out this long obedience. And God begins to interact in his life What's fascinating is you look back at Babylon and you look back at what were they looking for when they got these 10,000 and deported them? Well, they wanted the perfect. They wanted those who could perform. They wanted those who could be the best, who were the most intelligent, who had everything going for them. That's what they wanted. Doesn't that sound a lot like our culture? That what our culture pressures us to be is is all of those things. And what you begin to understand is all these pressures that the world puts on and what the world says, this is what you have to go after. That's what Babylon was pushing. But the Bible actually pushes back a different way. 
when Babylon steps forward and says, look, you need to be a person who seizes everything and hold on to it with all you've got, and you've got to gain more and more, and you've got to clutch it for security. The Bible says every good gift comes from the Father above. When the world says, look, you've got to concern yourself with only yourself, the Bible says consider others better than yourself. When Babylon or the world pushes and says, look, only love those who love you, the Bible pushes back and says, well, the pagans do that. You, you love your enemy. See, when Babylon and the world pushes and says, you get all you can as fast as you can, and you store up as much treasure for yourself as you can, the Bible pushes back and says, give all that you can. Store up your treasure in heaven. There's these competing values going on in Babylon, which in a lot of ways in scriptural tense will represent the world. And there's competing values that go on with us and what the Bible is calling us to live out. And what Babylon is saying is, look, you come be a part of our culture. You think the way we think, you act the way we act, you do the things we do. And Daniel and his friends in the lunchroom that day pushed back and said, not so fast. We have a different kingdom that we're aligned to. We have a different king that we follow. And, and I'll work for you, but my allegiance won't be to you. I'll be a part of what's going on here and I'll understand and I'll do my role, but it's not my final destiny. It's not the one who calls the shots in my life. And Daniel and his friends are standing up in that moment saying, not so fast, we're gonna push back. Our allegiance is to God's kingdom first and foremost. We'll be cooperative, but we're not gonna compromise. And when you look at Daniel chapter one, you can read through this week, uh, I wanted to pull out three different things that I see in here that I, I think for us in our culture, our world, that we have to come to an understanding. And the first one is this, is we have to decide individually who is leading you. You have to decide who's leading you, who's leading your life. Is it you? Is it the world and the systems and the priorities and the passions it wants to promote? Or is it God? Because it can only be one of those three. And so who's gonna lead you forward? And for Daniel in that moment, he stepped forward and said, look, uh, we may be a part of this kingdom. We may be in this kingdom, but we're not gonna be a part of it. It reminds me of Jesus' prayer in John 17 where he's praying for the unity of, of the believers and he, he prays for them and says, I want you to understand that you're not of this world, but you are being sent into this world. I don't know if you've ever traveled internationally or not. I've got my passport here, right? This passport is a beautiful thing. Because you know when you're stuck over in, in China, I've been there, or if you go over to Central Asia, or you go over to Europe, or you're over in different places, Ecuador, and what you know when you're coming back through customs is that this little tag right here that says USA is an amazing thing. Because you can be a part of a culture wherever you go, and, and there's a lot of beautiful cultures in our world but there is something about coming back to the best land in the world, my opinion. Now there's lots of great lands, 
But when you're going through customs and you're coming back and you have that stamp, what it means so much, so much is contained within that. And the reality is you have a passport as a follower of Jesus. And your passport is child of God, kingdom dweller. And you happen to be living in eternal life now on into eternity. The gospel of Jesus is not your golden ticket like Willy Wonka to get you home to heaven. The gospel is that we have life with God now and on into forever. That God promises to never leave you nor forsake you. That you are a part of life with him now. And that you get to dwell in that and and live with that reality. Even surrounded by imperfection. Because we're not in heaven. Isn't that nice? This isn't all there is. It's gonna be better. And it's good to lean into that. But to recognize we're not to be conformed to this world. Isn't that what Paul writes? As he says, do not be conformed to this world, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That way you can test and discern what God's will really is. What's God's best in this scenario versus what's the world say is the best? Because sometimes those philosophies are competing. That's what we see when you look at Babylon. That's what you see when you look at the world and the, and the priorities or the passions it's promoting. God tends to promote differently in different things. And what Daniel learned is, God, you're gonna call the shots in my life. And I will be a person who's cooperative, but I'm not gonna be a person who's just all consumed by this world and with the world that you've thrust me into. I live for your kingdom first and foremost. The second one is this, live out godly obedience and trust God with the outcomes. Daniel and his friends push back from the lunch table and they're living out obedience. God, we're gonna choose to do what we know you've already said is the right thing to do. And so we're gonna do that and we're gonna trust you with the outcomes. I'm sure secretively at 14, I would have been thinking this, God, I'm gonna do this and I'm just gonna hope that you rescue us and take us back to our homeland but that's not what happened. That wasn't the outcome that that unfolded for their lives. And it may not be the outcome that unfolds in your life, but Daniel at age 14 made a decision that God, I'm I'm gonna obey you and I'm gonna trust you with the outcomes of what that means and how that unfolds. It reminds me, um, 1 Timothy chapter four says this, do not let anyone look, think less of you because you're young, but be an example to believers in what you say and the way that you live and your love, your faith, and your purity. That whether you're young or old, be an example for God. Live out this obedient life. That's what you begin to see in the life of Daniel is in baby steps and in big ways. They just chose to say, we're gonna live out obedience to you, God. We're gonna trust you with the outcomes. The third thing is this, purpose in your heart to follow after God first and foremost. Purpose in your heart to follow him with everything and allow that commitment to impact and influence every aspect of how you live your life. I don't know if you ever think back to your junior high days 
in your junior high days, maybe in health class it was for you, uh, it was for us, where they would show us the movie of some teens who were drinking and they would get in the car and they would drive and there would be this giant accident, right? And the, all the 911 calls would go and the ambulance is there and the parents meet at the hospital and they're shoving tubes up every orifice of their body and all that kind of stuff. The parents are crying. And in that movie, what you're thinking is people are trying to scare kids that they would don't do that. Like, don't drink and drive because, like, you're going to have stuff shoved everywhere and parents are going to cry. It's, it's horrible. You don't want to do that. And so at junior high, you're kind of like, oh, I'm not going to do that, right? Or maybe you ever saw, uh, in junior high, we actually got to see, like, the lungs of someone who had been a, a smoker for all of their whole entire life. And just you got to touch them and, like, see them and they were so grody and you're gross and you're like, and it was kind of this, behind the scene push to say, look, don't, don't do that your whole life because kids will come and look at you and push on your lungs and it'll be gross and you're grossing them out. And so you'd have this challenge, right? Or remember the, uh, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs and don't do it, right? And it's a skillet with eggs and it's all fried and you're like, hey, don't do drugs because it'll turn your brain to eggs and it'll seep out when you sleep on your pillow and it's gross and so don't do that. And so at age, you know, seventh grade or so, you're seeing all these things and you're like, commit with your buddies. You're like, we're never gonna do that. And then high school comes, and college comes, and some of your buddies, maybe even you, make different decisions, different choices. And what seemed like a commitment at the time, in reality, was a preference. Well, I would prefer not to have that happen, so I'm gonna make a preference choice here. But when preferences changed, we made different choices different reactions. And the truth is, there's a grave and big difference between preferences and convictions. Convictions will guide you, will grow commitment. Preferences change based on scenarios and situations, don't they? And for a lot of us, myself included, I think sometimes we live a lot more by preferences than convictions. And I think what we see in the life of Daniel at age 14 is a young man who stepped forward and said, I'm gonna live my life by convictions, not just simply preferences. Now, if you prefer chocolate ice cream over vanilla, that's fine, that's not a conviction, that's a choice, it's a preference, enjoy them both. But when it comes to convictions, the deeper things of life, I think that's what we begin to see in the life of Daniel. See, God is not looking for influential people who he can make faithful. God is looking for faithful people so he can leverage their influence. And in a group of 10,000 refugees that are being deported from Jerusalem 500 miles to Babylon. He looked down and he found four. And they may not have been the best of the best, but they were faithful. They were consistent. They weren't perfect. They were consistent. They lived by conviction. And they said, God, you're gonna be the leader. We follow you the best we know how in the moment we're in and the situations that surround us, we're gonna follow you. You call the shots. And if we have to stand out and take a stand up for things, we'll do that. And we're gonna trust you with the outcomes. 
but we wanna be a people who you can use our faithfulness to be influential through. How do you explain a prisoner of war becoming the prime minister of a foreign land? Only God. There's no explanation for it. But at 14, Daniel and his friends decide in that moment, God, the best we know how, we wanna be people who live with godly convictions. We're gonna do that in graceful ways. We're not gonna be a jerk about it, but we're gonna live for you. And friends, I think God is longing in our time, in our here and now, I think what, what turns his crank, what, what gets his heart pumping, what gets the pulse moving through him is for young people, for middle-aged people, for old people who aren't necessarily influential where they are or what the world would say, you're at the top of your game and all that. People who would simply say, I wanna be faithful. And God says, I can use that. What if a church had a group of people who would say, God, we want to be people who live with godly conviction, who have graceful interactions with the world around us, and would you help us to be faithful so that you can use us, you can leverage us to be influential for your kingdom and for your namesake? I think that would bring a big, big smile to God's face. How about we do it? How about we do it? Why not us? Why not you? In your here and now, what would it mean for the next eight weeks just to simply say, God, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know how this is gonna play out on Monday or Wednesday or Thursday, but the best I know how right now, I'm gonna commit to you that the best I can, I wanna be faithful to you. Would you lead me forward? Help me live with godly conviction and help me to have grace in the interactions that I'm around, that I could be used and be influential for your kingdom's sake and your story in my world, in my here and now. So Father, that's what we pray for, is that this journey of the next few weeks looking into Daniel's life, celebrating um, the lessons that we can learn in a volatile time with so much pressure against him and against his way of living out faith He stepped up, he stepped forward, he took a stand for you. And God, I pray for us, gathered in this room, God, may we be people who would do the same. May we have a passion to step up, to step forward, and to stand up for you. Not in a way to try to be rude or belittling to others, but simply in a way with graceful interaction to be a people who live with godly convictions and live that out that it might be useful and influential for your kingdom's sake and for your story in our here and now, in our city, for such a time as this. We thank you that you empower us to do that. It's not something we have to try to muster up in the gumption that we have to do. It's through the grace of Jesus that we can walk that way. So as we come to a time of communion and we remember his life and his death, more importantly, his resurrection, his promise to empower us to do this, I pray as we hold that bread and take that juice that we'd remember 
that you are the one who's always with us. You'll never forsake us. You're the one who will empower us to, to walk through the adventure you have for us. Father, I pray that you would raise us up as a church to be influential for you as you have in an ever-expanding ways. We want to influence this city and this world for your name's sake. We ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.